Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On oil and gas pricing, a couple of comments. One, it's awfully warm all over. So the near-month natural gas prices come down a lot. I mean, I I think... uh, Whatever month we're trading now, whether it's February or January, was as high as six or seven dollars, and it's now around four dollars. This happened in the winter in warm stretches. There is this perception that gas production from the Permian, associated gas production, gas production from the Haynesville, is running higher than expected by a couple of days a day. The LNG facilities at Freeport still aren't in operation, so gas is weak. The 24-25 price has been hanging in, or the 25 price has been hanging in around four and a half, which is where it was, but the natural gas stocks are are substantially lower. Eventually, we'll have a page on natural gas stocks. The stocks will be in Taro, EQT, and Chesapeake may even get those done this weekend, but they they will all be weaker, I think, given this development in the gas market. The other troublesome thing last week is that Venture Global, which has been one of the LNG developers and which has a different approach to building their LNG facilities, they try to do as much as they can in this facility in Italy. Then they put the the equipment on barges and they barge it to Louisiana. They apparently are able to save on the cost of construction. They're also able to save time. And uh, they made an application to the FERC, which supervises LNG construction, asking to, you can believe it, take the number of contract workers on site from 3,000 to 6,000 because they've fallen a full year behind their expected plans. So that to me is kind of worrisome. If it's happening to venture, it's happening to others. And this theory that because of the high gas prices, there'll be more Haynesville. Uh, the, the largest gas base, the Marsalis, is kind of flat because it's pipeline constrained. But the Haynesville is right down there. So the combination of Haynesville and associated gas from the Permian is worrisome. The other worrisome thing is that the hub out in the Permian is Waha, and Waha's been trading, you know, normally it should trade about Houston Ship Channel. Houston Ship Channel should trade about like Henry Hub, and Waha should trade maybe 40 or 50 cents less than Houston Ship Channel. The reason for that is firm transportation rate to take gas 
from the Permian to the Gulf Coast are, is around 40 cents. So, I mean, it's been trading like $4 under, $5 under. Monday, if you had a molecule of gas or a, a bunch of gas in the Permian and you had to put it in storage because you didn't have a pipe to put it in, you're going to be charged 85 cents for putting it in storage. That's very worrisome in terms of additional production from the Permian. So anyone on the phone owning a gas stock, I'd be inclined to sit. I don't think this is the time. I think these gas stocks will do very well, very well as I, this weekend or some future weekend. I'll, I'll line up the three gas stocks that I think are the, you know, the best names, the prominent names. But so I don't, I, I, I don't, I certainly wouldn't come out of one of those positions. If you wanted to own to one of those positions or, or add to the position, I would wait and see how this all develops. In terms of oil, it's interesting. No one who follows the oil markets would have expected that with the Ukraine war running almost a full year, having started in February, that Russian oil production, given all the sanctions and whatnot, would only be off by half a million barrels. What has happened is the industry has been incredibly resilient, including the Russian industry. So from the beginning of December, the first week of December, uh, European Union members and the UK cannot purchase Russian oil. The Russian oil is moving to India, it's moving to China, and the Middle East barrels, Saudi barrels, and they would have otherwise gone to Asia and come into Europe. And, you know, in a way, uh, the industry is doing very well in proving self-resilient. But the people who were saying, oh, because of this and because of the sanctions, oil will go to $100. So far, they're wrong. The current price is in the 75 range. It, it is backwardated. In other words, the, the, you know, the future years are less than the current price, but, you know, it, it kind of flattens, flattens out at around 65. I think a good forecast for oil going forward is probably absent some major geopolitical development, it'll stay about flat. China going from zero COVID to, you know, trying to have a dash to herd immunity probably helps oil, but not necessarily in the next couple of months because Chinese economic activity is not going to really recover until they get to a point where, you know, people can go to work full time or, or start to accumulate money so that they want to, you know, spend money out and whatnot. So yeah, I think the opening up is good for oil and gas, LNG, other commodities, but, you know, the impact is going to be delayed. In terms of the two new pages, that were added this weekend. One is page 14. For those who don't have the 15-page memo, I'll just try to talk you through the key points. EOG and Magnolia are performing very well. EOG is in like four or five different basins. They are the largest producer in the Eagleford. They have a big position in the Delaware part of the Permian Basin. They have a big position in the Bakken, and they have a pretty big position in the powder. They are a very well-run company. Their trading, their free cash flow is almost $12 billion. That's, of course, somewhat dependent. Uh, of course, it's dependent on 
oil and gas prices, but they are trading if if they basically have no debt uh, at $130 times the number of shares outstanding. They're trading for $76 billion. That's about just under seven times free cash flow. That's a 15% free cash yield. Magnolia was put together by Steve Chasen, who was a long-term CEO at Oxy, done a great job at Oxy. It actually came out of a SPAC set up by TPG, a private equity firm, and they bought a bunch of assets in the Eagleford that were put together by uh, EV Energy Ventures, whose founder is John Walker. Uh, it worked out a pretty good deal for EV because they took cash and stock. And Steve unfortunately died a couple of months ago on natural causes, but they've really done a great job. And uh, they're trading about five times free cash flow. Now, normally with other companies, when we start talking about McDonald's and the other restaurant companies, we're going to look at growth. Here, I put growth in production, growth in revenue. Obviously, revenue is growing faster in production because of gas prices and then growth in free cash flow. Those all look very good. But the key thing I would say about EOG and Magnolia and the gas companies when I get them down is can they spend less than half of their cash flow? If you look at EOG, their free cash flow is 12, their capital spending is five. So their cash flow is, you know, that they're, they have to spend is five plus 12 or 17, and they're only spending five of it, you know, like 30 or 35% of their cash flow and increasing their production, their unit production 8%. That is fantastic performance. That's about the best performance I've seen at an independent. Magnolia is similarly good. If, if you take their free cash flow of 900 million and you add 500 million capex, that's a million four. So they're, they're about the same ratio and they increase their production 10%. So this is just fantastic performance. The third company here is on the page. It's a new company, a company called Colgate that was financed by other private equity people um, and, and merged in with a company called Centennial. It's interesting. It, 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 it looks like it's trading for about seven times free cash flow, but because the merger closed in September, you can't really see how they're doing. So it's a company that keep an eye on, but you can't be as definitive as you can be with EOG and Magnolia. Um, the last page, page 15, keep in mind that the, the pages are going to different industries. It's something that I think really makes sense to try to be a better judge of what to pay for cash flow, how vulnerable cash flow is. But these are the restaurant companies. And the free cash flow line, McDonald's is almost $11 billion. Starbucks is $3 billion and Chipotle is just under $3 billion. In terms of how they're trading, McDonald's is trading about 21 times that or about a 5% yield. Starbucks is around 40 times a 2.5% yield. And Chipotle is around 20 times a 5% yield. In terms of interim results, McDonald's is about flat. Remember, McDonald's had a big operation in Russia, which they sold to a Russian entity quite a lot less than it was worth. 
and Starbucks had some issues and don't really have any growth and EBITDA. Chipotle has had some issues. Remember, they're coming out of pandemic and trying to get back to business. So you don't see, I mean, both both Starbucks and Chipotle's revenues went up by 10%, but and Chipotle's cash flow went up by uh, 11%. So that's actually pretty good. To, to pay 20 times free cash flow, as we've learned over these Wednesday sessions, you really need to think that your free cash flow can grow 10% a year. So 5% free cash return plus 10% growth is 15%, 15% compounded doubles your money every five years. So, you know, that's that's the target you want to go for. Just to review some earlier sheets before we get some commentary from Michael and Jason, if you turn to page nine, Microsoft, which is kind of king of the hill now that App, Apple's losing money, has free cash flow of $60 billion. At the time that this was done in late November, the enterprise value was 30 times their free cash flow or 3% yield. Query is, is Microsoft going to be able to grow 10% a year? Don't know. Big question, I would say. The largest company by free cash flow is Apple, which is on page three. This this was done in October. Stock price was considerably higher. I think it's now down below 120s. This was 147. Uh, free cash flow uh, in the assessment made at that time was 95 billion. At that price, is trading for 25 times free cash flow, a 4% free cash yield. With free cash flow, to their credit, growing about 12%. You know, one one of the things I like about this way of getting organized. I mean, we looked at the streaming companies, Netflix, Disney, and Amazon. We looked at AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile. We looked at the uh, MasterCard, you know, one of the great investments in Visa. We've looked at retail companies, Walmart and Target. We looked at the big energy companies, Exxon and Chevron. There, Exxon, interestingly enough, remember we're looking at EOG, seven times free cash flow. Exxon seven times free cash flow. Kind of interesting to see those two lined up. We looked at the software companies in addition to Microsoft, Salesforce, Snowflake, and so forth. We looked at the big banks. They don't seem to be growing too much. JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, both about 10 times free cash flow. We looked at the big substantial manufacturing companies in the US, Cat and Deer, both trading at around 20 times free cash flow. Uh, we looked at the midstream companies, once again, mostly trading at, you know, in that range. Last week, we were looking at Pfizer against Moderna. Pfizer is the one that sticks out with $40 billion of free cash flow, eight times, eight times. You know, is there something about that $40 billion of free cash flow? Well, Moderna made $8 billion of free cash flow, and Pfizer is probably bigger in vaccines than Moderna. So that probably means that without the COVID vaccine or with less COVID vaccine, there's some vulnerability in that 40 billion. Still something uh, we have to keep looking at. Um, the point of going through all this before we get Jason and, and, and Mike to use the rest of the half hour is what are we seeing here? What we're seeing here is that for the longest time, we've had very low interest rates 
and the Fed building its balance sheet, adding to the money supply. So sitting here in the beginning of 23 has that overvaluation of all kinds of assets, houses and all kinds of things, uh, collectibles, but stocks, has that run its course? Or is there still some overvaluation out there? I don't want to be the negative person uh, or a overly negative person. I think everyone should have 60, 70% of their investable assets and stocks. But sitting here at the beginning of 23, it seems to me, when you look at this wide range of different industries, that there's still some overvaluation. And uh, what do you do? Well, if you find something you really like, uh, you can always buy half interest. If it goes down, you can buy the other half. If it turns out you've had a, a good discerning view, at least you own half if it goes up from there. That I've now used a, a minute or two more than the than the first 15 minutes. So I'm other than asking questions, I'm going to stand down and hear what Michael and Jason can add. Over to you, Michael. Okay, well, let, let's take a look at restaurants because Jason and I did a little bit of research on these. And I guess before you, Jason jumps in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this case is that we're, we're seeing huge increases in the cost of labor and labor availability. And the, some of these restaurants, in the case of McDonald's, employs a lot of people. And if those people are less willing to work for lower wages, because typically a McDonald's job does not pay a lot above minimum wage, they're going to be in a position where they're going to have to raise prices. And I think we've already seen some of that happen with a lot of these these stores. They've already had to raise prices. But Jason showed me an article earlier today on some of the technology and kind of the consequence of these higher wages is that technologies are going to be invested in order to balance those things out. So I'll hand it over to you, Jason. Right. So so what McDonald's is currently testing, um, they have a, a test restaurant in Fort Worth, Texas, that is fully automated as far as the, the consumer is concerned. The restaurant is only for carry out and drive through orders and they never interact with a human. So there, there are people in the restaurant actually cooking the food and wrapping it, but the packaging of it and putting it into the bag and delivering the bag to the customer is all automated through robotics. Those tests are, are occurring now and they're, they're getting initial customer feedback, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't know how much of the staff in a, in a restaurant is reduced, but it, it's going to be pretty dramatic, I believe. And that'll change the cost structure of these businesses, right? So you'd shift a lot of OPEX to CAPEX in that case. I think otherwise, when you look at Chipotle versus the other two, I think it's probably easier to make the case for Chipotle being able to grow 10% a year. So from a valuation perspective, I thought that was one of the more interesting ones, more so than McDonald's or Starbucks for that matter. Starbucks is going through a number of their own issues Um their founder coming back to to run the company again and they've, they've had these cycles of over expansion in the past so i'm not not really surprised about anything that's happening at starbucks and i think that's why it's probably hasn't fallen in price more is that the belief is that they'll be able to come back from where they are starbucks is a pretty large presence in in china and as they're they've ended their lockdown and they'll they'll work through the infection wave do you think there's the room that that revenue grows significantly from there. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know how much Chinese revenue is in 
or historically was in in Starbucks, but it, it, you got to guess that a lot of that's going to come back maybe 12 months from now. I've got a question for Mike, Mike and Jason. I think that's really intelligent view of the restaurants, but I have a question for Mike and Jason on page two. We spent a lot of time talking about AI software last week and NVIDIA on page two. This is a 1014 price. As it turns out, I guess we all should have bought NVIDIA then. A partnership that Mike and Jason are responsible for. NVIDIA has been a core holding for them right through all this. But in terms of AI software, I was talking to Mike, I guess, yesterday morning. We talked for about 20 minutes every morning early San Diego time. He mentioned, and, and Jason will have more insight on this, that Facebook may have purchased as much as a billion dollars worth of uh, GPUs and software from NVIDIA to put together a server farm that's available only to Facebook engineers. And to the extent that that people, you know, try to catch up or keep up or whatever's happening with the development of AI, what does this do for the largest and, and I guess the best producer of GPUs in the world, namely NVIDIA. Why don't we, since it was Mike and I having a discussion, why don't we turn that over to Jason? Sure. The way we view it is, is CUDA is really the moat that NVIDIA has. So that, that's the, the, the engine that runs a lot of the AI algorithms on NVIDIA chips specifically. So there's, there's two real libraries out there, CUDA and OpenCL. OpenCL will run code on any GPU, so you can run it on an AMD processor. CUDA's proprietary to NVIDIA chips. You can port code to run on, on either or. Um, so one strategy is uh, using an open source project that kind of cross-compiles or ports CUDA code to OpenCL, and you can think of that as like translating a document between two spoken languages. You end up with two versions of it. Another solution is is you would use a language called HIP, so H-I-P. And this is uh, something AMD created that uh, you'll write your your algorithm, your code in, in HIP, and then it can be integrated with either an NVIDIA processor or an AMD processor, so it'll run on, on CUDA and OpenCL. The problem with that is, is there's always overhead with, you know, translating your instruction sets, your code, and it's always going to be a, a step behind, if you will. So the industry is kind of coalesced around CUDA. Um, there's several reasons for that. And then because of that, you know, the, the, that library, the HIP library needs to be updated every time CUDA updates. And, and you can think of NVIDIA wanting to update CUDA every time there's new hardware released. So pretty frequently, and then you're, you're going to be a step behind if you're always waiting for that, the new features to be um, rewritten, if you will, in HIP. And then you have to update your code to, to as well run there. So with that in mind, you know, there's, there's these bottlenecks to creating the AI applications. One of the bottlenecks is availability of engineers. So you're probably not going to have your engineers spending their time debugging these quirks 
and, and waiting for updates to come for this, this other version of the library, you're just going to have them run on CUDA, on NVIDIA processors, and probably get better performance with less effort. So that's kind of how we view it there. And, and to NVIDIA's credit, they, they have a great um, software team, and they're pushing the boundaries in AI as well. So we, we've been talking about ChatGPT, large language models lately. NVIDIA is, is, is really pioneering a lot of that as well. So they, they've written a lot of the libraries, of course, on CUDA. And you know, they've, they've trained a version of a large language model themselves, which they cleverly call uh, Megatron Turing. And for a bit of context, ChatGPT was trained on roughly 100 or so billion parameters, this, this NVIDIA chat algorithm was trained on 530 billion parameters. So I haven't seen it in a, in a public setting. So it'll be inter- really interesting to see the capabilities there when, when they do release it. Right. And what they're saying is that you can take that model and train it on your own. As an enterprise customer, you can take that model and train it on your own data with a relatively minimal amount of data. And relatively minimal additional effort, you can take that model and turn it into the example that they gave was a customer service call center chatbot, if you will. So it could interface with humans and be specific about what the responses needed to be relative to your business with relatively little effort. So I, I think all of this stuff is coming to uh, to to an enterprise near you <laughs> at some point here in the near near future. So Microsoft seems to be trying to integrate the open AI into their products. So would you expect, I mean, Google presumably has this all and just hasn't put out their own version of chat. Who, how would NVIDIA turn this into revenue? Right. So, so NVIDIA will turn it into revenue a couple different ways. One is all the cloud, well, enterprises will make one or both decisions. They'll either bring most of their compute hardware in-house, kind of like Facebook did with the 16,000 A100 GPU uh, array, that one computer that they bought last year. I, I was a little off on the estimate. It was not a billion dollars. It was $400 million. But that didn't count a bunch of the other infrastructure that went into it. So I think the total gets closer closer to the large number. The, so they'll either go that route and own all their own hardware and their own system. They'll go some combination where the smaller scale stuff will be done in-house. Or they'll use Microsoft or Amazon or Google and rent the server time as needed. So... There's, there's many ways for NVIDIA to make money here. They will also license some of their software. I believe the Omniverse product that they have is a licensed software, and they're, they're rolling out more licensed software as, as is. In fact, one of the interesting things that I wasn't aware of until recently is their number of software engineers is greater than that of their hardware engineers now. So. Gives, gives you an idea how it's, it really is a software company disguised as a hardware company. Right. Does, does Amazon with, you know, say 50% of the cloud market with Azure at 30 or whatever they are, does Amazon need to have their own product to compete with Azure? 
meaning their own LLM or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not necessarily because you could run your own. I would say Microsoft doesn't really have their own. They have a ownership stake in OpenAI and OpenAI happens to use the Azure cloud. Um, so there's some natural collaboration there, but without outside of that, I don't think Microsoft would have would have done this and then provided as a Azure service um, to others. So you, you think about Google and Facebook doing similar things, and, and they haven't they haven't released what they've done. So they're really keeping it close to the vest. Well, that was a big announcement today, right? The fact that Microsoft is going to use it in Bing Search, which is exactly the opposite of what I said last week. <laughs> So I was wrong, but, but the the implications of that are pretty interesting um, because you know there's there's a world of search traffic, and the the way I've been thinking about it is Google probably didn't release Lambda because they had no incentive to release Lambda. Don't kill the golden goose, if you will. And now that the cat's out of the bag, and this is going to go into the Bing product, Microsoft doesn't have nearly as much to lose. I mean, they they do some five or seven or nine billion dollars in revenue on on bing or on advertising which includes bing so i i don't it's hard to disaggregate it so i don't think they're giving up very much by trying this out and what they may do is steal market share from google so google may lose a little bit of market share google will likely release lambda as a you know countermeasure as a result, maybe their margin per search, the amount of operating income they generate per search goes down the, in the short term. In the long term, what we're seeing is, is kind of what you want to see in an efficient market. You're seeing disruption of a legacy, practically a monopoly business, somewhat of a disruption. And, and even though Google's been ready with doing a bunch of this work to research it, they're now going to have to compete against Microsoft. So I, I think it's I think it's healthy for competition in general. I think it's great for users and that we're probably going to get much better surf, search projects. I think that Microsoft and Google are going to be tasked with a pretty interesting challenge as to how to properly monetize this new type of search product or whatever you want to call it. The, the world's our oyster, right? It's a digital landscape and there's going to be many different ways to try to monetize it. Don't be surprised if everything looks like billboards at first, because that's basically the way all internet advertising started. So we'll see. Good. Well, we've chewed through our 30 minutes, but we will, we will do more on this next week, probably the week after, and maybe the week after that. In terms of new companies, I will try to do a sheet on the gas companies this weekend or next weekend. And there are four companies that I want to, look at their free cash flow and they're not really related. One's FedEx and, and the other's UPS. Those are related. But one is Nike and one is Costco. And I, I probably should have had Costco on the you know comparison with Walmart, but I'm gonna try to turn out a sheet with free cash flow for those companies. In the meantime, uh, everyone stay well, stay healthy, and we'll be back on next Wednesday. Take care everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. 
The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.